0: This is American History TV's Lectures in History podcast. This week, University of Utah political science professor James Curry teaches a class about the Electoral College, how it was created, and how it works as part of the U.S. presidential election process. The class took place prior to the 2020 vice presidential debate on October 7th. All right, in that case, I'm going to share my screen, and we're going to start talking about the Electoral College, everybody's favorite thing. Okay. So today we're going to spend, we're going to start our week of talking specifically about the Electoral College, what it is, how it works, why it's important, why George C. Edwards doesn't like it, Um, in fact, why most political scholars kind of hate the Electoral College. It's not very popular among sort of the political science set. You get a kind of a with George C. Edwards' book, which hopefully you've read most of so far, if not all of it. Uh, you kind of get a full-throated argument against the Electoral College, but it's a useful and instructive book also because he lays out all of the common arguments for it as well, which I think is helpful for allowing each person to sort of make up their mind about what they think about this institution, generally speaking. Um, so this is really and I do a whole week on this one because it's a it's how we elect the president but very few Americans fully understand the full extent of the process at the very least if you take a course in the American presidency you should probably walk away understanding how this process we use to select our chief executive officer works Um, but also because it's also really important in how it structures how elections turn out So just like how we started our discussion of presidential nominations by talking about the history of nominations processes and taking a relatively deep dive into the process rules that rule nominations today, we should start out presidential elections the same way by taking an even maybe even deeper dive into the single most important institutional process that affects how we select a president. So your reading for this week was George C. Edwards' classic book, Why the Electoral College is Bad for America, I'm I'm sure Dr. Edwards has made a good amount of money on this by now. It's in its third edition after all. Um, and in the book, Edwards explains how the Electoral College system works. He highlights some key problems with the system, lays out and responds to the typical arguments made in favor of Electoral College. But today, all we're gonna focus on is how the system works and how, what the outcomes of the, of the Electoral College have tended to look like. Next time, we'll turn towards arguments about pros and cons of the Electoral College and sort of consequences of the Electoral College for how candidates campaign and how presidential elections tend to shake out. Today, all I want to accomplish is for you all to fully understand the system, where it came from, and how it works, because it tends to be more involved than people think. Okay, so why do we have the Electoral College in the first place? Well, a lot of that stems from there just being a desire among many of the delegates at the Constitutional Convention to compromise and come to some sort of resolution regarding what setting out what the terms would be for their new constitutional government. If you recall, we talked about this earlier in the semester, that one of the overriding concerns from the delegates was that they needed to come to a compromise and produce a new document, a new constitutional document, by the time they were done in Philadelphia, which meant all of them were somewhat inclined towards compromise. There was a real fear at the time that if the convention failed to produce a reformed political system for the United States, the country would splinter into multiple regional parts, and they'd be more easily conquered or reconquered by European powers, who were essentially sitting across the Atlantic, you know, kind of eyeing um, the United States already for political dysfunction. That inclination to compromise led to a clear acquiescence to the vehement interests of certain states, including smaller state interests. They wanted to ensure that those smaller states, as well as the slave states, wanted to ensure that their voices were amplified in the new governmental system and pushed pretty hard and pretty consistently on that point all throughout the debates on most things, including on the debates over um, how to select the president. As I told you during the second week of class, most of the debate about the presidential office at the Constitutional Convention centered on how the president would be selected or elected. In fact, the convention spent 22 combined days debating this specific topic and took more than 30 different votes on 30 competing proposals and amendments to proposals about how they would do the selection. And throughout those 22 days and 30 votes, there were largely three main options debated for how we would elect the president. Essentially, there were three main camps, um, with also some other sort of various like sort of sub-camps um, and compromise promote proposals thrown out there. But there were three main avenues that were considered or advocated by different delegates at the convention. One option was to have the president selected by Congress. That is, either the House or the Senate would actually meet to consider candidates and cast votes to directly select the executive. This would sound a lot like a parliamentary system where the uh, prime minister is, is, a, is, is or was formerly a member of the national legislature and is designated as their leader, either by the majority party or coalition, and then assume sort of an executive office. Another option that was laid out there was that the president should be elected not by the Congress, but by the state legislatures and that each of the state legislatures would take a vote on their preferred candidate and the states, whatever candidate got the support from the most states, would become the new president. And then a third um, main option that was considered was from a subset of members of the convention who really wanted a direct popular vote for the president, um, largely arguing that that was the only way to ensure that the presidential office had any sort of separation from from being inclined to just be dominated by either the states or by the Congress. And then, of course, there were some other proposals. Um, Alexander Hamilton made a pro- largely made a proposal about something like the Electoral College, but um, elect- an Electoral College that would choose a president for life and then pick a new one when the president died. So you had a lot of different ideas thrown out there about who would be the president and how would we get to the president. And there were certain concerns that drove the tenor of these debates around these various options. In other words, there were certain things that many of the founders were concerned about achieving or avoiding through the method of presidential election. I'm going to run through some of these. One of these concerns was avoiding what they've referred to as legislative intrigue. And a related concern was making sure that there was presidential independence. Legislative intrigue essentially was a term of the time for schemes among members of Congress to select certain presidents for certain self-interested reasons. That is, to select a president that would perhaps empower those specific members of Congress, rather than selecting a president who would, you know, do a good job or achieve certain policy aims. Presidential And this ties into presidential independence, because there was concern that if the selection of the president was driven by congressional intrigue, that essentially you would have a reality where the president, whoever was selected, would be entirely dependent on the Congress to maintain their time in office, that because you were going to have this language about impeachment in the Constitution, congressional selection would ultimately mean that Congress could lord over the presidency threatened to impeach the president every time the president didn't do what Congress wanted because the pres- Congress was not have the power to both put someone in the office and remove them from office, which was seen as too dependent on the Congress. So the convention delegates, for the most part, also wanted a system in which the president had some separation and independence from the legislature, which were two things that worked against direct election by the Congress. Another concern was voter parochialism, uh, and that the founders were concerned that the country was too large and that people would be too uninformed of their potential leaders from any other states other than their own. So essentially that if you did direct elect, direct election by state, what you would get would, would be, if we're talking about the first election, 13 states that would choose 13 different presidents, and you essentially be deadlocked with 13 candidates essentially coming in sort of a quasi-tie. Um these people, wanted the pub, people who are concerned about voter parochialism wanted the public to have some voice, but they wanted a system of selection that would force the consideration of candidates with a broader national character and reputation. So they're concerned you had to do something beyond just direct election in order to get to sort of a place where people would be looking beyond their own state borders. Um, founders were also concerned about there being a need for intermediaries between the public and the, president, the selection of the presidency. While a lot of the delegates wanted direct selection and were advocates of sort of direct democracy over the selection of the president, other founders were less excited about that and were concerned that if the people selected the president directly, that they would make unwise choices, that you needed to protect against tumult and disorder, as some of them put it. And so you needed some sort of system that had intermediaries between the public and um, the, election and the president so you can see these last two concerns these next two concerns voter parochialism and the need for intermediaries sort of pushed back against direct selection of course there was also fears of presidential power but there are different con- beliefs about what would allow to, what would allow for a more empowered or less empowered president. Some delegates thought that direct election of the president would make the president too powerful because then the president would be the only person who could claim to have the full mantle of the public. But then others thought that a president would be too powerful if they were indirectly selected as well. State population size was a key concern in that small states wanted to be sure that their voices were heard in the new government. Under the Articles of Confederation, as you may know, small states essentially were able to dominate the process because every state, regardless of population size, had exactly one vote in the Articles of Confederation Congress. And most decisions in the Articles of Confederation Congress required two-thirds to three-quarters of the Articles Congress to be in agreement for anything to happen, which meant that small states largely had veto power over anything larger states wanted to do and far fairly outsized power, given that most of the population lived in four states um, at the time of the Articles of Confederation. The electoral college structure gave small states a bigger voice than they would have had under direct election, though it gave them a smaller voice than you might have had from some forms of congressional selection and or some forms of state legislative election. Um, small states still weren't even happy with the Electoral College compromise, as we'll talk about in a bit. When the Electoral College fails, the House of Representatives selects the president with one vote per state, and that was sort of a key carrot given to the small states to get them to sign on to this Electoral College agreement in the first place, because many of them, many founders thought that the Electoral College would never actually produce a majority winner after George Washington, and that the House of Representatives would be selecting the president every time. There were also the concerns of slave states slave states had worked really hard to ensure that they were overrepresented in the new government and other parts of the constitution as you likely know Uh, there's the three-fifths compromise that went into the u.s constitution that counted each uh, slave within a slave state as three-fifths of a person for the purpose of uh, allocating congressional seats in the house of representatives Slave states were set to lose that boost that they had in house representation if there was direct popular vote for selection of the President, so they were really concerned with seeing some sort of system that reflected Congressional apportionment. Back into the selection of the President, so they would have a larger voice in presidential selection relative to their voting population as well, and finally again the short term concerns there was fatigue. The convention delegates wanted to get out of there with a new system. They were concerned that failure was the worst possible option. And that led to a lot of people who wanted a different outcome to acquiesce to the concerns of slave states, small states, or other people that had really strong opinions, and who were willing to walk away from the convention if they didn't get what they wanted. So those concerns altogether essentially ended up with an electoral college system that's really essentially a really messy compromise. The Electoral College did not achieve anyone's ideals for what the election of the president would be, but it did reflect those key concerns on the previous slide. It gave each faction something that they wanted, a popular vote funneled through the states with, and, the, and but the allocated the states some power and giving Congress some final say. But no one was fully happy with it, but it was something that nobody was upset enough about to sort of walk away from the convention over Plenty of delegates walked away from the convention. You had a good number that refused to sign the final document and went home, but none of them really walked away over the Electoral College. They walked away over other broader issues, uh, usually over congressional apportionment or something like that. Before we move on to running through how the Electoral College works from start to finish, does anybody have any questions that they want answers to in terms of clarification or otherwise? I had a quick question. Yeah. Uh, so which um, founding fathers, like which group, I guess you'd say, were in favor of a direct popular vote? It's hard to categorize them in any way other than to say the ones who are more committed to like more of a direct democracy. And they didn't come from any like specific like parts of the country. Um, they kind of were sort of randomly distributed, but someone, the leader of that sort of faction, and these are the people who were Least satisfied with the Constitution in many respects, um, where the leader of that faction was really George Mason, um, who was upset sort of from day one at the convention because he was hoping to go there and push for a system of government that was legislatively driven, driven that had like pure apportionment by population and had a lot more direct public voice. Um, And he was sort of throughout The convention appalled that over and over again, those ideals were compromised away um, towards delegates who were concerned about more immediate power concerns for specific constituencies or states. Uh, Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Yeah, thanks. But you'd have to sort of like go and read like James Madison's notes to pull out who all those people were like individually. Yeah, Uh, yeah. But even that, you know, the Mason worked really hard and ended up like shaping the system to be more democratic than it might have otherwise been without him, because he was very influential um, and pushed really hard. And he refused to sign it in the end, but it would have looked—he made it look a lot better relative to his preferences than it could have, because he was dogged in his determination. Other questions? Um, I had a question, if that's okay. Yeah um uh, so i'm pretty familiar with the three-fifths compromise and i understand what it is but i was just curious like how did it come to three-fifths because that's like super specific super specific you <laughs> know i know like why it is yeah. don't really know why specifically three-fifths i am not sure anyone knows why specifically three-fifths like so many things at the, the convention we have very limited sort of note taking on the nature of the debates, um, and it varied from moment to moment because there are a handful of people who were delegates who like kept a journal or a diary during it, and most of those are very spotty. Or like you might have days go on and their diary just says attended convention today, but they didn't talk about what happened. James Madison tried to take as com- took about as complete notes as we could, but it was just him like scribbling eighteen hours a day. things were going on so he never he didn't always capture what everyone said in every moment um so you have like him talking about like them debating things like a three-fifths compromise but not really going into like what were the different specific fractions thrown out um three-fifths must have sounded good enough to everyone is probably because that's often what things how things worked at the convention is that um They would decide that that number sounded satisfactory to everyone so something like also like why two-year terms for the house you know it was like well someone proposed four and people were like oh that's too much that's too long and someone else proposed one and it's like oh that's not long enough so someone said two and they're like yeah that's good and so like it's probably just sort of a a matter of the south the southern states being like okay getting three fit we'd rather the south came with a proposal that slaves counted as full individuals for apportionment which would have really increased their power in the congress and then there are other and there were some members who wanted them not slaves not to count as all count at all so three-fifths i guess was good enough for everyone to say fine um, or enough people to say fine but why is three three three-fifths probably remains a mystery unless somebody's done some really good sort of historical work that i don't know about other questions all right So let's run through how the Electoral College works sort of step by step and from 30,000 feet and what the outcomes of that have been like. So how does it work today? Less so about how it worked in 1789, but how does it work right now? So right now you have 538 electoral votes as part of the college in a given election year. The formula for it is very simple. Each state gets two, which is the number of senators they have, plus the number of House seats they have. So Utah has four members of the House of Representatives, plus the two senators that every state has. So it has six electoral votes in the Electoral College. Another state that has 10 House members would have 12 electoral votes in the Electoral College. In this way, it's sort of almost roughly proportional to the size of a state by population, but with smaller states weighted a bit heavier because they get that two-seat boost no matter or two vote boost, no matter how small they are, and then consequently larger states sort of like ratcheted down a bit because it's not purely proportional. The District of Columbia gets three votes, no matter what, under the under um, a constitutional amendment uh, prior to the either somewhere between the I don't remember now. I think maybe the 1970s. The District of Columbia didn't get to vote in presidential elections didn't have any votes in the Electoral College. And so that was an amendment tacked on that DC would get three, uh, which at some point may become awkward because at some point DC may be large enough to have um, to, through the regular apportionment scheme, have four votes, but it'll still be locked into three, Um, such as the life of Washington DC of always being either under or non-represented in the government along with Puerto Rico and various other parts of the United States to win you got to get a majority of the votes, which is 270. You notice that 538 is the total number of votes, so you can have a tie. It is possible to have the Electoral College come out to 269 to 269. Um, That's a nightmare for everybody, but you need 270 at minimum to become president. Um, If you don't come to 270, it doesn't matter if you have more than your opponent. So if you had three candidates getting electoral votes, you could have a way, you could have sort of it's split in such a way that no one gets a majority and therefore nobody wins at the electoral college stage. Exactly how many votes each state gets gets reallocated every 10 years after the census, just the way, just like we reallocate house seats based on the census every 10 years because the formula is simply two plus the number of house seats. So if Utah were to pick up a seat in the coming census, which it's unlikely to do, but if it were, it could go from having six electoral votes to seven and other states may gain or lose electoral votes just as they'll gain or lose seats in the House of Representatives. On When all is said and done, votes for the president are cast by the 538 electors um, in order for there to be a winner decided. This is essentially what the outcome of the process can look like. This is what we call a cartograph of the 2016 electoral vote from the Electoral College. And there's a number of things to notice here. One, I like to show this because it shows the size of these states based on the number of votes they have, rather than based on either their land area or population. So this is an accurate representation of the size of each state within the Electoral College. It also lets you, allows you more clearly to see um, the decisiveness or non-decisiveness of an Electoral College outcome. If You show a landslide on here. Um, you can see that the thing lights up entirely in blue or red, but in a close election like 2016, you see fairly equals, fairly close sizes between the blue and the red states because it was a fairly close election. But something else you'll notice in here is that there are a number of people here who got electoral votes who are not Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, because under the Constitution, that we'll talk more about this in a minute, under the Constitution, electoral college electors are can vote for whoever they want, as long as that person is 35, alive, and a natural citizen of the United States. So in addition to the 227 votes for Clinton and the 304 votes for Trump, you had a number of other people receive votes, which you kind of see down here at the bottom. Colin Powell received three votes from the state of Washington. Um, Spotted Eagle received one vote, I believe also from the state of Washington. Washington just wasn't having it with this election. Rand Paul received a vote, or Ron Paul, excuse me, received a vote in Texas, as did John Kasich, and uh, Bernie Sanders received one vote from an elector in Hawaii. Uh, These people are called faithless electors, as we'll talk about in a minute. Okay, so where, who are these electors and where do they come from? Um, So how do they select? So the process actually starts for any election year well before election day, in which potential electors are nominated um, to stand actually on the ballot. This nominations process of who will potentially be the 535 electors selected by each state is up to each state. Each state can set their own rules for who these electors will be. Typically, what most states do is allow the state party organizations to nominate the sufficient number of electors. So again, if we're talking about Utah, the state Democratic Party will nominate six people to stand on the ballot as the Democratic electors. And the state Republican Party will nominate six people to stand on the ballot as the Republican electors. Uh, These are the people that you're actually voting for. Who are these people, typically? Who gets nominated to be an Electoral College elector? Um, But free of the Constitution, the only rule is that they cannot be someone holding a federal office. So a member of Congress, a president, a cabinet secretary, anyone holding federal elected or appointed office cannot be an electoral college elector. Otherwise, it can be any, you know, able-bodied adult. Um, typically, they are party insiders, donors, or other people with long service records to the state party. It's sort of a re- typically a reward for having worked hard for that state's party. Now you get to have this semi-ceremonial um, role where after election day, if your party's candidate wins in that state, you get to go and cast the electoral votes. We often refer to these people as a slate of electors, because as we'll talk about in a minute, most electors in most states, they are elected uh, in full or as none per slate. On election day, These people have been nominated, and when you show up to vote on election day or pre-election day or vote by mail or whatever version of voting that you're doing this year, you're not actually voting for the candidate for president or vice president, even though that's whose name is on the ballot, who you're actually voting for are for one or the other slate of electors. Um, that's that's the actual outcome that comes from this election. So if you vote for Joe Biden, you're actually voting for the six Democratic electors. And if you're voting for Donald Trump, you're actually voting for the six Republican electors who've been nominated in that state. Election day by congressional statute takes place on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. That's been true since 1845. Before 1845, there was no standard election day. Essentially, you had states voting sometimes over the course of nine months, to select the president, which was somewhat chaotic, which is why Congress set a standard election day. There is no constitutional guarantee that each state selects their electors by popular vote. To these, in present day, all 50 states plus the District of Columbia have popular statewide votes to select select the electors for the Electoral College. But that's not guaranteed because it hasn't really been challenged in a while. It's feasible under the constitution that you could do it a different way. In fact, in the 18th, 18th and 19th centuries, some states had the state legislature actually vote to select the electors for the electoral college. It's only really been since the 1840s or 1850s that it's been routine that most states use popular vote to select the electors. In all likelihood, if a state tried to change this, someone would bring a lawsuit in court and probably the courts would guarantee a popular vote for president within each state, but there's certainly no guarantee yet because no one's really tested this in a while. In some states, the names of the electors that you're actually voting to put in the electoral college, some in some states, their names are actually on the ballot next to the president's name or the presidential candidate's names, but in most states, they are not. You don't actually ever know who these people are unless you like the state party organization finds it or you can find it in sort of whatever state governmental office, in the case of Utah, it's the the lieutenant governor, whatever state office manages the elections, someone should go and look and see if they can find the names of the electors for Utah on the lieutenant governor's office website or somewhere else. But you wouldn't know it when you get your ballot because it'll just say Donald Trump and Mike Pence, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and the various third party candidates who have qualified for the ballot. And you may never actually know who the electors are unless you pay attention to um, what happens in December and January. All but two states then select their electors as a winner-take-all vote. That is, the candidate who receives the most aggregate votes in a state gets all of 100% of their electors from that state appointed to the Electoral College. There are two exceptions to this, Maine and Nebraska. In Maine and Nebraska, there is first there are first two electors handed out to the statewide winner, and then one elector handed out per winner in each of the congressional districts. Um, so sometimes you see Maine and Nebraska sort of split their electoral votes in that you'll have, for, in, for instance, in 2016, you had three of Maine's votes go to Hillary Clinton and one go to Donald Trump. In 2008, you had four of Nebraska's Electoral College votes go to um, John McCain and one to um, Barack Obama. Um, from the third district of Nebraska. And Allie has her hand raised. Do you want to go? You have a question? Yeah, I was just wondering then, is there reason that inversions happen where uh, a president can lose the popular vote, but win the electoral college due to the fact that most states are winner take all? Or is it because of faithless electors? It's, so it's, it's never because of faithless electors. I'll say that. That's never caused a person to lose the Electoral College when they won the popular vote. Sometimes it's because of, specifically because of winner-take-all, though there are other times where the popular vote and the Electoral College lined up, whereas if you had had every state do what Maine and Nebraska does, then the popular vote winner would have lost the Electoral College. One example of this is 1976, whereas if, where Jimmy Carter won the popular vote and the Electoral College, both very narrowly, but if you had done it with the uh, Maine and Nebraska approach in every state. Gerald Ford would have stayed state president. Um, the main reason they don't line up often is because the Electoral College is not directly proportional to the votes in each state for a variety of reasons that we'll talk about next time. The big one being that every state gets two, a base of two electoral votes and then it's proportional only after. But also, as we'll talk about next time, the number of electoral votes is not sensitive to the actual turnout in a state. And you have some states that have really high turnout Some states have really low turnout, but that states don't gain or lose electoral votes based on the actual number of people who show up and vote. Um, So it heavily skews the relationship between total actual votes coming out of a state and electoral votes coming out of a state. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So that's what happens on election day. But it's not over yet, because even once election day happens, and within a couple of weeks, typically most states have certified the winners, therefore certified who the electors are from each state. Um, though this election year, we may see some of that get delayed quite a bit because you might not necessarily know, not necessarily have all the votes counted for a couple of weeks after Election Day, which will push back the certification process. But once all the votes have been counted and the winners have been certified in each state, then the actual electors meet on the first Monday after the second Wednesday in December. That's if that isn't confusing enough. Basically, that means they meet in the middle of December um, on a Monday, Um, usually the second or third Monday in December. Congress has set this date by statute. It could be at a different date. Congress could change when the electors meet at any time. Um, That's just a purely congressional decision. It used to be later. Now it's earlier. They all meet in their respective state capitals, usually in some governmental office. In Utah, they usually meet in the Utah State Capitol building to cast their votes. And to this day, they still cast large, floppy paper ballots that are very fancy. Um, they write in the names of the people. They have, well, actually, usually these days, they have the names of the winners printed on them, but they can cross it out and write something else. But they're these big, fancy, parchment-type ballots that the electors actually sign and fill out, and then they... They vote two times. They have two ballots now. They vote on one ballot for who they think should be president. They, want, they vote on a second ballot for the person who they think should be vice president prior to the 12th Amendment. They, those two ballots were not distinguished. It was just they voted for two people. And then those ballots are certified by a state official and mailed to the president of the Senate who can tell me who the president of the Senate is. The Vice President, the Vice President. So technically, they mail them to the Vice President, um, which can get awkward when the Vice President is also on the ballot. Um, Or in the case of Al Gore super as we'll see super awkward for him as this process plays out because the President of the Senate plays a key role in the certification process here. So is that it? No, we're still not done. The votes have been cast by the electors. They've been certified. They've been mailed to the Congress, but nothing is official until Congress counts the votes. Specifically, they count the votes at 1 p.m. on January 6th, which is very, very specific, Eastern time, not Mountain time. Um, They only don't do it at this specific time and date if January 6th is a Sunday, and then they just kick it to the next day. What happens is the president of the Senate, there's that vice president again, presides over a joint session of Congress, meaning that the members of the House and the members of the Senate, and this would be the new Congress, right? So this is the incoming Congress. So the, the Congress that was elected on November 3rd this year will actually start, comes into being on January 3rd. So all the new members are seated. You may have a new balance of power in terms of a new party controlling the House or the Senate. Um, And then that chambers, that new Congress's first official course of business is to count the electoral votes in a joint session where literally what happens is usually four to six members of the House and the Senate are designated as sort of a, having the ceremonial position of reading the ballots. Literally, they are stacked up in envelopes on the House dais, and they take turns opening them, reading off the tallies, handing them to the clerk of the House to be verified, and then the vice president announces and certifies those votes as having counted. Congress can reject or challenge ballots that are sent to it by the states. If both a representative and a senator object, that is basically this process involves, they open a ballot, they say they start from the beginning, so they open the ballot from, usually they read them and they do it in alphabetical order by state. So say it's Alabama's turn, they open it up, they read the ballots, they'll say Alabama's has, I don't remember how many electoral votes Alabama has, either six or seven electoral votes, Um, It casts all six or seven of its electoral votes for Donald J. Trump for president and Mike Pence for vice president, then hand it over to the clerk, who reads it again, and hands it up to the vice president, who waits to see if anyone objects. And if a House member and a senator both raise their hand and object to those ballots, it is then a formal challenge to them, and then the House and the Senate Devolve back into their respective chambers and they take a vote on the resolution of objection. If both the House and the Senate agree to object and reject those states' ballots or even one of those states' ballots, it is literally thrown out and it doesn't count. And this has happened at times in American history of war. Electoral College ballots have been thrown out by the Congress. This is the part where Congress really gets to be the ultimate decision maker. If Congress was unified and felt like it, it could throw out all the Electoral College votes and make its own choice at 1 p.m. on January 6th. Uh, there's nothing keeping it from doing that, though it's never really done it that way. It's thrown out votes. It's dealt with the fact that there's dealt with periods of time where no one won a majority in the Electoral College and had to, was compelled to step in and make a choice, but it's never aggressively used that power um, to date. Are we done yet? No. 270 accepted votes for one person for the President or Vice President, and you have a winner. Otherwise, the House and the Senate decide if nobody gets 270. Um, The House selects the President among the top five finishers in the Electoral College, with each state getting one vote, which basically means that each of the states devolve into their delegations. So if you're a state like Utah, the four members of the Utah delegation sit down and decide who they're going to vote for with their one vote. Um, Other states do the same. Um, They get to decide kind of their own internal mechanisms for doing that, but most a lot of states would have it such unless their decision is unanimous. They don't cast a vote. Um, And they have to pick among the top five finishers in the Electoral College for president, meaning they can only vote for people who received votes in the Electoral College and they can only vote for people who are in the top five Receiving votes in the Electoral College. This was literally how the founders thought that they would actually select a president after Washington. They thought no one would ever win a majority in the Electoral College. There would be like five to ten people who received Electoral College votes. It would then go to the Congress. Congress would certify the votes or throw out some of their abnormalities. And then they would sit down and decide among the top five finishers who should be president. And then they would vote and do it. Never really worked that way. It only kind of worked that way one time. Um, and it was for an, an odd reason. Um, but it's never worked that way. It hasn't really worked out that way because the Electoral College has been more unanimous than they ever thought. The Senate, on the other hand, selects the vice president among the top five finishers for VP, and they use a normal voting process where each senator gets his or her own vote and whoever gets a majority of the votes in each case wins. But you have to get an absolute majority, which means that if you have a bunch of states in the House that deadlock and don't cast votes and no one gets 26 votes, from the 25, among the 50 states in the House, you don't have a president-elect. It's much easier to get a majority in the Senate. Um, so you're more likely to get a vice presidential-elect. So is this person president now? No, now there's a gap. there is a gap. There is an awkward gap there where on January 6th, you typically have a president-elect, but that person is not sworn in until January 20th. They're sworn in on January 20th, no matter what, even if it's a Sunday, but they only hold the inauguration ceremony on that day if it's not a Sunday. There are all sorts of contingencies built in here. If no president, if only the vice president has been certified as the vice president-elect, but the House is deadlocked and who the president should be, or some other disaster occurs where the, the president-elect dies or becomes incapacitated, the vice president automatically becomes president of the United States on January 20th. Congress can then subsequently still pick the president up to some amount of time. That's unclear. But in the meantime, the vice president becomes president. If the vice president is also not certified, say Congress certifies neither the decision of, for the president or the vice president, then supposedly the Speaker of the House becomes president, though this has never actually occurred. It's never been tested. This is has been decided by statute and may very well be unconstitutional. We don't know couple of important details. Electors are not necessarily bound by the popular vote in their state. Again, it's important to say that you could be a Republican elector in a state where the Republican nominee wins and you decide to vote for someone else. This is what we saw in 2016. In fact, in most elections, we see at least one faithless elector. But there are some contingencies here. One, each party typically requires them to take an oath to vote for the nominee so if you want to continue to have a relationship with your state party you probably don't do this some states actually require elect electors to be faithful with penalties mostly financial penalties and in fact the supreme court this year upheld those state penalty requirements but at the same time an elector could say some states, states like colorado like will fine you tens of thousands of dollars and might put you in jail if you're a electoral college elector and you vote against Uh, The certified popular vote winner in your state, but your vote still counts against the popular votes wishes of the population in your state. It's just you may be fined and go to jail, but if you believe that strongly, perhaps you would still vote that way and your vote would still get counted by the Congress that way. Then you have the question of what happens if someone dies during this process. This is one of the most horrifying aspects of our system because it's in some respects, it's okay. And in other respects, it's a complete nightmare. So if a candidate dies before Election Day on November 3rd, that's okay because the parties can re- nominate somebody else and they automatically replace the dead candidate on the ballot. And if ballots have already been printed, say, say Joe Biden died tomorrow, at um, all likelihood the Democratic Party would nominate Kamala Harris to take his place as the presidential nominee and they would nominate someone else to be the vice president. But in most states, the ballots have already been printed and so you would be voting for if you wanted to vote for Kamala Harris, not dead Joe Biden, you'd have to vote for dead Joe Biden, but your vote would count for Kamala Harris. Um, so that's relatively smooth because states can make that, you know, states can, the parties can essentially renominate someone within a matter of hours um, using like a tele, it's just the executive committee of the Democratic Party that would make the choice. And it's pretty assumed that they would always pick the VP. If the president elect dies after election day, so say, Joe Biden or Donald Trump win the election on November 3rd, but it isn't yet the first Monday after the second Wednesday in December when the electors meet, But say one of them dies, the Electoral College electors can now vote for whoever they want. Um, They can still vote for dead Joe Biden or dead Donald Trump if they want to, but those votes will be thrown out by Congress. So instead, they can vote for whoever they feel like. Presumably, most of them would vote for the vice president. Uh, or the vice president-elect if they voted for, if they're in that case. Um, so if Donald Trump died, they'd probably all vote for Mike Pence. If Joe Biden died, they'd probably all vote for Kamala Harris and then they would pick whoever the hell they wanted to be VP. It would probably be chaotic. And then in the end, the Senate would probably pick a vice president. But that's how it would work. The problem really comes in if the Electoral College has already voted and they've already ma- mailed their ballots to Congress um, and say the president-elect from the Electoral College dies on Christmas. Um, this is a prior problem because now those ballots have already been cast and Congress is compelled to throw them out because they cannot by law elect someone who's dead, which means now Congress has to pick somebody, the house of representatives has to pick somebody who finished in the top five in the electoral college, which may just be the person, the only person who other person who may have received electoral votes for president in the electoral college might be the person who lost the election. In which case you'd have a lot of house members who would probably simply refuse to vote and then you would have no president elect and the vice president would become president. This is really a nightmare if um, both the president and vice presidential winner die between December 15th and January 6th, uh, because then Congress would have to throw out all the ballots and would be in a position where they probably wouldn't want to vote for the losers to become president. And so they would have to turn over the government to the Speaker of the House and the president pro tem of the Senate who is likely to be either Patrick Leahy or Chuck Grassley, both of whom are extremely old. Um, and we don't even know if that's a constitutional decision. So that's a huge oversight in the system, by the way, um, that there are all sorts of contingencies where if a candidate dies, um, you could have it could be fine or you could have a disaster. This has only happened once. In 1872, Horace Greeley passed away between election day and the meeting of the Electoral College. He had lost the election, to Ulysses S. Grant, Um, and so his electors in the Electoral College voted for whoever they wanted, but it didn't matter because he had lost anyway. Um, A number of them still voted for Horace Greeley even though he was dead, and Congress threw out those votes when they counted them um, on January. At that time in March, they moved it up to January subsequently. This process has been amended a few times, so it's largely the same as it was in 1789, but with some changes. You had the aforementioned uh, 12th Amendment in 1804, which separated out electoral college voting between the president and the vice president formally, instead of just having electors vote for two. Uh, you had the 14th Amendment in 1868, which says that electoral college votes can be reduced or thrown out if a state limits the right of people to vote. Uh, this is one of the most aggressive pieces of language in favor of voting rights in the Constitution that Congress is supposed to be compelled and their courts are supposed to be able to compel to take away a state's electoral votes if they, if they inappropriately restrict people's rights to vote Um, but it's never been enforced and no one's really ever brought a capable lawsuit to do it though. You do wonder with a lot of the controversies about voting restrictions happening in some states. If you won't see something like this in the relatively near future, a 14th amendment case about taking away a state's electoral college votes, because of them playing around with um, voter registration and voter access to uh, ballot boxes. You have the Electoral Count Act of 1887, which set up formal laws for challenges to and ambiguities in the casting and counting of electoral votes. Prior to that, there was no, essentially no law about how to deal with the Electoral College from a statutory standpoint. The 20th Amendment in 1933 moved the date of the Electoral College's meeting, the counting of votes, an inauguration up to January. Um, prior, all this stuff had happened in February and March, now it all happens in December and January, in part to make the governmental system less awkward. Prior you had almost six months between Election Day and when the new government sat um, with tr- travel technology and speeds amping up. In the 20th century it was no longer necessary to give people six months to travel to DC. Um, And it also, the 20th Amendment, also started to create some contingency plans for what happens if a candidate dies. The Presidential Succession Act of 1947 really put some real teeth behind what happens if a candidate or president dies, largely because the Congress was really spooked by FDR's death only one, only a couple months into his fourth term. They all realized he could have easily died several months earlier after he had been elected but before he had been inaugurated. And they wouldn't have had any clue what to do at that point in time in terms of filling some of these holes. The 22nd amendment limited the president to just two terms. So a president can only be certified and voted for by the Electoral College twice. Um, And then the 23rd amendment gave the District of 1961 gave the District of Columbia three votes in the Electoral College. Has this process always worked out? No. Um, there have been plenty of anomalies and by anomalies you can mean any number of things. This means basically I take this to mean any election where things didn't work out the way that people expected or planned with the system or you had a mismatch between the popular vote and the electoral college and, and or you had other anomalies that required uh, the Congress or somebody else to take relatively extreme steps or where the design of the electoral college seemed to play a major role in who was able to win or not on that election day. And you can see here, there's been at least eight presidential elections where there were significant anomalies caused by the system itself that are worth discussing, discussion. The first of which is the election of 1800 in which Jefferson and Burr tie for first place in the electoral college because all the Jeffersonians cast their two ballots for Jefferson and Burr respectively. But because at that time prior to the 12th Amendment, There was no distinguishing between which ballot was intended to be president and which was intended to be vice president even though everyone knew that burr was supposed to be jefferson's running mate that we had no winner coming out of the electoral college and the house of representatives had to choose a winner and it took the house 36 votes and several weeks to ultimately beat back federalist attempts to supplant jefferson with burr and jefferson became president and burr became um Know, public enemy number one to all the Jeffersonians. 1824 No candidate won the won a majority in the electoral college. You have five five candidates on the ballot each of which had different regional support and nobody prevailed. Jacks, Andrew Jackson who won the popular vote with 41%, far short of a majority but who only had 31 percent of the electoral college votes, um, lost the election despite having plurality in both counts when Henry Clay, who came in third, directed his supporters to back John Quincy Adams, who had come in second, pushing him over the top in the House. Um, This was seen as sort of a big problem by Andrew Jackson, who thought he should be president. Fast forward 12 years, to the election of 1836, a number of Democratic Party electors refused to support Richard Johnson as Martin Van Buren's vice presidential candidate such that they vote for a number of other people, and Richard Johnson, while Van Buren wins a majority in the Electoral College, Richard Johnson does not. The Senate has to take a vote on who will become vice president, and they ultimately decide to make Johnson vice president anyway. But here's a case where things didn't really work out as planned or very smoothly. The election of 1876 is a notable one. Samuel Tilden, the eventual loser of the election, a Democrat, wins the popular vote, and, in fact, wins a majority of the vote in the election with 51%. But 20 electoral college votes were disputed in the House, in the joint session of Congress. They were thrown out, which meant neither he nor nor Hayes have a majority. The debate over what to do dragged out for months uh, with Democrats being very upset that they lost an election that they thought they rightfully won both in the popular vote and the Electoral College. There were threats of another civil war. Ultimately, the, what was called the Compromise of 1877 gave the agreed, what Democrats agreed to give the presidency to Hayes in return for the end of Reconstruction in the South. So, you know, without the Electoral College, Reconstruction may have had a more satisfactory end. Uh, election of 1888, Grover um, Cleveland wins the popular vote with 94, 90, 49% of the vote in his reelection effort, but loses the Electoral College to Benjamin Harrison, who got 48% of the, of the popular vote. This result was largely caused by Harrison's tiny 1% win in New York State, but Cleveland sort of sweeping the more rural and southern states overwhelmingly, with Harrison not even on the ballot in a number of those states. The election of 1860 is one that doesn't often get talked about as sort of an electoral college anomaly, because if you look at the results, it looks pretty clear. Kennedy supposedly won the popular vote, though very narrowly. He won 49.7% of the vote to Nixon's 49.6% of the vote, so about a one-tenth of one percent margin between the two in the popular vote. But if you look at the electoral college, it looks like he won decisively. He got 303 electoral votes to Nixon's 219 However, this is so close, and there's so much going on that in many ways Nixon may have been screwed out of the election, um, or at the very least was screwed out of a popular vote victory. Uh, John F. Kennedy ultimately won the election by only 100,000 votes, which nationwide is a microscopic edge. Both of those, but the outcome may have hinged on some anomalies in a few southern states. For instance, in Alabama, they refused to put Nixon on the ballot, and they did this by taking all the candidates' names off the ballots and just putting the electors' names on the ballots and not really indicating which elector supported who. Five of the electors came out and said that they supported Kennedy. The other six refused to say who they support. supported in, partially in, par- in all probability because they were sort of anti-Kennedy delegates. Six of the anti-Kennedy delegates won, five of the Kennedy delegates won, which means six of the votes went to a third party candidate who wasn't even running an election campaign uh, because they just didn't want to vote for Kennedy, but they also couldn't bring themselves to vote for Nixon. In a fair system, Nixon and Kennedy probably would have been on the ballot as the nominees. And in a fair system, Nixon probably would have won the state and probably would have won ele- eleven electoral college votes in um, Alabama. But as it stands, Nixon was neither Nixon nor Kennedy were given credit for any of the popular votes cast in Alabama, and Nixon was probably lost out on eleven electoral votes in Alabama and probably another seven or eight in Mississippi, where something similar happened. In all likelihood, Nixon probably won the popular vote in 1960 by quite a bit, but he still would have lost the electoral college. In 2000, as at least probably most of you know, Al Gore won the popular vote 48 to 4%, but lost the electoral college to Bush 47 to 9%, with Florida's votes disputed. Um, if any of you ever followed what happened in 2000, not only did Gore clearly win the popular vote, he may very well have won Florida as well, um, but the recount was halted by the Supreme Court. We'll never actually know who won Florida, um, but that re- recount or non-recount ended up being decisive because it swung, could have swung enough electoral college votes in either direction to give the presidency the winner. If it was the 19th century, they probably just would have thrown out all those ballots, and Congress probably would have made a decision um, in early 2001. And you probably would have ended up with the same outcome in that Republicans had a majority in the House. They probably would have carried the day and installed George W. Bush as president. But unlike the 19th century, politicians today in Congress are far, probably far less willing to sort of throw out electoral college votes and install a president through the congressional selection process. And then, of course, the election of 2016 was yet another one where we had a mismatch between the popular vote with Hillary Clinton winning percent, two percentage points more in the popular vote than Donald Trump, but Donald Trump edging out. Clinton and the Electoral College by virtue of winning a number of Midwestern states very narrowly against Clinton's running up the tally in some of the larger urban states. Okay, questions about this process, how it works and how it plays out? It's a lot. I actually had a question. Go ahead. Um, How did a presidential candidate selecting their electors for each state work before parties were a thing? So pre-parties, you just kind of had the state legislature nominate supposedly wise folks, but they were also essentially nominating slates of partisan folks by 1796, right? In 1789 and 1792, it probably worked very different. The legislature probably probably just promoted some notable citizens because everybody knew everyone was voting for Washington. But even then, like you had clearly had partisans on each side because there was a dispute over who should be vice president as early as 1789. And so you had people fighting within the state legislatures to nominate either pro-Adams people, or or like like, like there were four or five other people and Adams ended up having the most support. But by 1796, you essentially had parties within the state legislatures essentially running the show and nominating the electors to the degree that there was a popular vote, or in the case of the number of preponderance of states early on, they just selected the winners within the legislature by legislative vote, um, them essentially picking partisans as the electors through their own voting mechanisms.
1: So, you know, even
0: but by by the 1830s, you have really forming formal party systems. And so, like, it kind of looked much the same since the 1830s. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Yeah. Other questions? Feel free to speak up. It's probably the most complicated system of election in the world. There's no reason, I don't think you can find another election system where it would take that many slides for me to explain to you just the process. Um, In most places, voting is as simple as you vote and someone wins when they get more votes. Um, The Electoral College really is a special and unusual system. A quick addendum on the vice president um, to return to our addendums after a break from that last week. Um, Vice president is really an afterthought in the Electoral College. Um, Initially, I mean, they just designated the person who came in the second as vice president because they wanted there to be a vice president in case the president died and they wanted to be someone who had some level of broad support. But the whole point of having two votes in the Electoral College under the constitutional design was not to pick a vice president, but to force electors to vote for someone not from their state. One of the things I didn't show in, this, in the slides that remains true is that one of, the, one of the few things that binds electoral college electors is they are not allowed to cast their two ballots for two people from the same state. A party, therefore, can never nominate a president and a vice president from the same state because the electors would not be allowed to vote for one of them. They'd have to vote for someone else. And that was done early on just to force electors to think about, they assumed they would all pick their favorite person from their state, their leading state politician with their first ballots, but then they'd all have to think hard on their second ballot about who is someone they like from another state. And that would elevate someone with a truly national character like a George Washington or a John Adams or a Thomas Jefferson as people who had become sort of national citizens and leaders at that point. Um, obviously it didn't work out that way because the Burr-Jefferson controversy led to the 12th amendment, which then led to this setup where they cast formally designated presidential and vice presidential ballots. But that rule about not being able to vote for someone, two people from the same state remained. Um, Today, essentially the vice president's biggest role in the electoral college is that the VP elect can become president if no president is chosen. So it probably saves us from electoral college disasters. But even if you have some sort of deadlock at the presidential level, uh, it's likely that you're going to get a vice presidential elect nominee because the Senate has much clearer voting rules. In the House, you can just have a bunch of states deadlock and not cast ballots in the formal House of Representatives balloting for president in the case of an electoral college failure. On the other hand, in the uh, for vice president, each of the senators just votes for who they want, and someone's going to get the most votes, and that person becomes vice president. And so then even if the House doesn't pick a president, that person likely also becomes president of the United States. So oddly, so in an interesting, totally unintended way, the vice president continues to primarily serve this role of saving us from there not being a president simply by virtue of being alive and elected. Also, we could think about the vice president as sometimes playing an important role in candidates' electoral college strategies. It remains common, though not always true, that Presidents will or parties will select a vice presidential candidate that they think will help them win a key state in the Electoral College. You see this sometimes, but not other times. Tim Kaine may have been selected in 2016 by Hillary Clinton in part because she wanted to ensure she won Virginia, and perhaps that would give them a tiny enough bump in Virginia for it to be decisive. And we've seen this at other times, though, of course, we get plenty of candidates for vice president who are going to play no role in terms of helping the president win their home state in the Electoral College. Both Mike Pence and Kamala Harris come from pretty clear partisan states where their presence on the ballot isn't really necessary to push those states over the top. So that's the addendum on the vice president. Any (laughs) final questions or comments? I had another question. Go for it. Uh, So on the 14th Amendment, you talked a little bit about how um, theoretically, Congress could throw away states that denied uh, voting access. Um, Would that play out by like congressional statute or by court decision? So that's actually by court. Congress can throw them out for any reason. They don't need the 14th Amendment. What the 14th Amendment does is give the public an opportunity to challenge electoral college votes through the federal court system by arguing that the state on un- that state unduly restricted certain people's rights to vote, and so the outcome was not fair, and so those electoral votes should not count. And so it allows a second mechanism for throwing out electoral college votes. Prior, it was just Congress. Now, potentially, also the Supreme Court can throw out under the 14th Amendment can throw out electoral college votes. So it's a second avenue, but there's never been an attempt that got very far. Some of the lawsuits in Florida around the 2000 election and with everything that went wrong in Florida in 2000 centered on the 14th amendment. And in fact, both sides were able to use, weaponize the 14th amendment, with the Gore people arguing that these should be thrown out um, and or there should be a recount. And if there can't be a recount, they should be thrown out because it seems like certain peoples were systematically disenfranchised by balloting design decisions at the state and county level. But the Bush people were making an argument that like, likewise, you shouldn't recount, what the Gore people were trying to push for was a recount in like three or four counties where things were particularly bad. Um, And the Bush people were saying, if you're gonna recount three or four counties, you have to recount the entire state, which they also knew would mean that there would never be time to recount the entire state. Um, Because if you recounted in some counties and not in others, this was a violation of the protection clause of the 14th Amendment. So the 14th Amendment actually came into play on both sides arguments. Mm -hmm. In 2000, but you just haven't seen a lot of sort of like really strong efforts at using that specific part of the 14th Amendment, though you have to imagine it will happen at some point. So basically, it allows for a judicial um, avenue for throwing out electoral college votes. Congress already has its own avenue and it doesn't even need a reason. Okay, thanks. Other questions. All right, then, if not, I will see you all on Wednesday. And if you're able to, um, please try to watch or attend the Hinkley Forum tomorrow. But it's an announcement about, about the presidency. It takes place at noon tomorrow. It should be an interesting discussion of the presidency. So, see you all there. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you you can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.